Welcome to Small Things Make a Big Difference. My name is Spencer Holt. I'm a father of four, a married amazing wife. I have lived in Canada, the USA, and in England. I speak all three Englishes fluently. I currently work at AstraZeneca in the pharmaceutical industry where I'm head of our global commercial learning and I'm passionate about how do we as leaders be more intentional in who we're trying to become and help bring out the best in others. This is a series of interviews of leaders all over the world. So join us, share it with others, and let's focus on the small things that make a big difference. I hope you had an amazing weekend. It was Valentine's weekend, so February 14th. I know some people love it, some people hate it, some people are indifferent about it. For me, Valentine's Day is an opportunity to show and express love to that are to people that are important to you. Now, you don't need a specific day for that, but sometimes it nudges people in the right direction. So for me, I was able to, you know, take my kids out for for lunch and we got to, you know, I try to make them a really good breakfast and dinner and we try to do some things my wife, who is absolutely amazing and, and helps me be a better person, she, during COVID, started to make sourdough bread and has gotten really good at it. You know, she does the fancy designs and she gets the right, you know, the crust. And she said, let's go give a loaf away today. And it was on Valentine's Day. And of course, if you make a lot of sourdough bread, you got to give it away or you're going to gain some weight. But it's been a great way to get to know neighbors. So we go to our our, our neighbor's house and and we'd met them on walks, but never really talked to them. So we social distance on the porch, don't worry. And as we're walking back, you know, my wife said, boy, you never regret doing something nice. And I thought that is so true, whether it's giving away bread or doing a bit of service for somebody or sending a message, you will never regret doing an act of kindness. And I'm super excited about our episode today, uh, where Kimberly Davis, this amazing example of a executive, a mother, but somebody who is through kindness, through example, and through sharing her voice is trying to help make the world a better place. May we all, through small things, make the world a better place. Enjoy this episode. This week, as a Canadian, I am excited. You, being Canadian, you, you know, I might not have like played professional hockey, but you love hockey as a Canadian. And so we have a special guest, Kim Davis, Executive Vice President of the NHL. Welcome to Small Things Make a Big Difference. Thank you, Spencer. Happy to be here. Well, it's, I'm, we don't know each other really well yet, but by the end of this, I'm hoping we'll be best friends. Um, <laughs> But you've been very kind to come onto the show, and you, you, we have a mutual friend, which is why I love intersections of people. But Kim, I'm so excited to have you on, on the episode today because you represent, I think, someone that has broken through barriers. You, you know, haven't followed a, a totally normal career path, and so tell us a little bit about who you are, what you've done, and then we'll go from there. Well, thank you. Oh, my goodness. Well, there, there are a lot of uh, dimensions and, as you said, uh, intersections to, to who I am. But uh, professionally, I am senior executive vice president with the National Hockey League. I've been there for now just about three years. 
I have responsibility for all of our culture change work, our youth hockey, uh, our, uh, our, our learning and uh, work to bring new audiences to the sport um, as well as legislative affairs. So it's, a, it's a quite a bit portfolio. Uh, the position was created uh, for me uh, as a result of some work that I did for the league uh, as a consultant. So um, my route to the NHL was probably very different than, than many. Uh, I'm not a, uh, a traditional hockey fan. Uh, notwithstanding, I've come to love the game over the three years that I've been involved with the, with the game. Uh, I spent 30 years in financial services, uh, investment banking, uh, and, and so I, I come to hockey from a very non-traditional field as it relates to women and particularly people of color. Uh, and I think that that probably is where the connective tissue is as people think about, you know, how and why a, a black woman, a woman of color being uh, in an executive position with the National Hockey League. Wow, thank you for that. I'm, I, when you described your portfolio, I was like, sheesh, that's a big job. Um, <laughs> and so let's talk about what led up to there because to your point, it, it sounds like a, probably historically, there have not been a lot of women in senior executive roles um, and in particular women of color. And so what has, has there been some pivot points in you and your journey as a leader that has helped you break through opportunities that maybe weren't there in the past? Like, I, I'd love to kind of get, is it a mindset thing for you or is it examples? Like what, what's been the formula to help you in your, your journey? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, I, all of the above Spencer, um, you know, I, I was lucky and fortunate enough to, uh, to grow up in an environment where I was affirmed very early on. Um, I had the opportunity to see trailblazers like my grandmother, who was uh, the first uh, black woman uh, and the second woman to get her PhD from Harvard in 1939, uh, PhD in education. Um, I was fortunate enough to uh, for my first mentor to be my, uh, my maternal grandfather, who was an amazing leader in Chicago, a community organizer. And, uh, and, and so I, I saw leadership modeled in, in very meaningful and substantive ways growing up. You know, I, I attended uh, Spelman College, which is a, an all-female college, uh, which further affirmed my, my leadership stance uh, and, and showed me various models of, of leadership and also affirmed the notion that uh, diversity is not just about race and ethnicity, but it is about experiences. Uh, and so I think all of those things prepared me for non-traditional um, careers and in areas where I could be a difference maker and a movement maker. And, and so that's what, what I consider myself to be. Uh, and I think it's the thread uh, that has been woven through all of the career moves and the, uh, and the things that I've done throughout my almost 40 year career in corporate America. Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, you know, we're on video. This is not a video podcast, but I'm like 40 years seems like a long time because you look really young. Um, <laughs> and, but you also, we, before we jumped on, we, you talked about, you've got a son, uh, 
doing his PhD, you also have a whole nother life that's not just corporate. You have a family and talk. I think, I think we need more examples of really successful people that have families and all these, you know, whether they're traditional or not, you found a way to make it work. Talk a little bit about that and how that's worked for you and how that hasn't been a barrier. Maybe it's been an advantage. Yeah, well, you know, it, 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 this is a timely conversation because I was just um, um, nominated and selected as the uh, New York State Mother of the Year by the American Mothers um, Association, which is a big national uh, organization that focuses on, on mothers. And I often say to people, my career is, is what I do, it's not who I am. Uh, and I think my, my proudest accomplishment is that I raised two uh, highly educationally accomplished children. My daughter is a lawyer. My son is, uh, is currently pursuing his PhD. But more important than that, they are nice people. And I think that is attributable to um, the care uh, and, and the attention that both my husband and I gave them, even though we were both working. And so I say to young women, young mothers today that you, yes, you can have it all, just not at the same time. <laughs> and that what that means or what that meant to me, uh, having raised two grown children is that you have to have your priorities in order and you have to understand at different points along that, that lifeline, you know, you're gonna have to make a decision about what, what's most important. And for me, it was always family. That is, well, first of all, congratulations on New York State Mother of the Year. That, that's pretty cool. And it, it is cool. It, what an honor. But to your point, it, it's a reflection of your values. And I'd love to, can you kind of help us unpick? You just said it's, a, it's about choosing what's important. How have you done that? Because sometimes I think in a, in a world today, it's like, well, everything seems important. And, you know, how do I... How do I, you know, you, you're 40 years away and you're like, you've done some incredible things, but did it always feel like you were doing incredible things in the moment? So I'd love to hear a little bit around <laughs> that. When you're in the middle of it, it can be hard. So how do you get through the hard part? Oh, it's so hard. And, and I, you know, I, I've, I've said uh, on many occasions that, um, yeah, I've, I've missed in, in important uh, events and, um, and there were things that, that I would probably say were disastrous, but uh, as I talk to my grown children today, they, uh, they say that it was a sign of, of vulnerability and a sign of, of imperfection. And it's important for your children to see that so that they can sort of build grit. Uh, and I don't know that I thought about that while it was happening, but I, I'm sort of glad that they saw the vulnerable side of me. They saw me make mistakes and recover from it. Uh, and I think it has, uh, it has shaped our relationships now as adults and as friends. You know, they, they often laugh, uh, or we often laugh about the idea that when they were growing up, I would say, it is not my job to be your friend. Uh, and, and I was, those were some of the same words I heard from, from my parents, um, but we are now friends. And so relationships do change 
from the parental relationship with your children to the friendship with your children as they become adults. And, um, and I do think it has to do with being authentic and being vulnerable um, and showing vulnerability and showing that you can recover from mistakes. And, um, and all of those are, are lear learning moments. And uh, for sure, I had lots of them. <laughs> oh my gosh i love I, I i have four kids and so i'm kind of i you know chuckling as i'm you know my oldest is only 19 and we go down to 12 and so we're still in this the uh, which i love if i could freeze time i would but you're in the grind of balance and integrating everything is there advice you would go back and give yourself to say hey now that i'm on the other end of this here's something to think about. Yeah, I, I think the, 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 the greatest advice is not to sweat the small stuff. And I think that that period from like 12 to 16 are the some of the toughest years, right? You want to get it right. You know, you know that those are such important years as you prepare for, uh, for college and for life. And so, you know, you, you are, um, you know, aggressive with them around making sure that they study right and that they are sort of building their portfolio. And sometimes you don't stop and smell the roses. You're just so focused on execution. And I think that that's something that I can look back on and say, you know, it's this thing, it's the small things, uh, the, the things that appear to be insignificant that adult kids remember. Uh, and all of the things that we talk about now, the memories that they have are the small things that, that were big to them. And so I think that's what, um, what I always say to parents who are going through it now. It's like, they're not gonna remember all of those, like the, the, the moment about what, what, you know, what the math test meant and if you didn't do well and what the implications are going to be on, on your college application. They, they remember those moments of being at the, uh, you know, at the local diner and sitting and laughing about something that happened that morning. Those are the things that they remember. This is this is so great. By the way, I'm I'm like trying not to turn this into like a personal coaching moment because I'm like, <laughs> oh, this is you know, not not only now is it woman of the year, mother of the year, but I'm like <laughs> writing this down. This is such great insight. Um, and what lucky kids uh, they are to have to have you as a mom. I I'd love to sort of change gears here. I've I've been following you on LinkedIn, and you are. A, I would encourage people to follow you if they if they're not. But you you have done a lot of hashtags on um, the con this concept of women of color and um, it's or hashtag movement not a moment. And I love them because I, but I thought I would love to hear you talk about why is hashtag women of color so important to you and more importantly why should it be important to someone like myself? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, I, I am so intentional about, um, about um, amplifying women of color. Uh, and it really goes back to an experience that I had literally 20 some odd years ago uh, when I was at JP Morgan. And I had a, um, uh, an individual, uh, a white male ask me, um, and, and very innocuous and, 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 and was really trying to learn something. Um, he said, 
you know, when you think about your, your identity, do you see yourself as uh, black or do you see yourself as a woman? I mean, what, what is your identity? And I, I, I was so perplexed by, by that question because of course I am a black woman. So my identity is, is, is multiple as we all hold many identities but but it occurred to me that there you know we we in society are most comfortable when we can put people in clean boxes and when those boxes intersect um, sometimes it, it creates confusion for folks um, so at that time i was um, i was leading the the talent function across uh, the investment bank for uh, for jp morgan and we did a study on the experiences of women of color in investment banking. And based on the data, we learned that that intersection of race, ethnicity, and gender, I, we, we called it the triple threat, created some different experiences for women of color versus white women. And without going into a lot of detail, uh, it, it began to allow us to create some allyship and some uh, partnership models between women of color and white women that didn't exist. And so I've learned over the years that we can't assume that, that people understand that there is something different about that intersection of gender, race, and ethnicity that creates different experiences. And the data proves it out. For example, if you look at, at pay, uh, you know, white women, 81 cent on the dollar relative to, to white males, but black women, it drops to 53%. For Hispanic women, it's 51%. For Asian, it's 57%. When you look at corporate board seats, uh, women represent about almost 20%, 19.8% of corporate board seats, but women of color, it's only 3.3%. So there's something about that intersection that does create a different experience. And so it's my job as a woman of color, you know, with, with some privilege to, uh, to amplify that. I, I'm, it's almost those, those stats, it's almost like you know them, but when you hear them out loud again, you're like, oh my gosh, we have work to do. Yes, yes. When you hear that, what, like, and so what is, what, because many of us will be sitting not as a board member or you know, someone that maybe I, you know, I, I can't control the pay disparity. So what can I do when it comes to helping what you've just articulated? What's my role in helping women of color from a societal perspective? Like, is there anything, any tips that you could give us if we're listening to this to say, what can I do to help? Well, you know, this ties to your second question about uh, movement, not a moment. Um, I think each of us has a role to play as movement makers. And I think that the, the this season of COVID and the social justice uh, pandemic, <laughs> uh, you know, we talk about the COVID pandemic, we've also gone through a social justice pandemic, um, calls each of us in our own leadership space to be movement makers. And that starts with one, an understanding. And when we have an understanding and a recognition, then we need to use our voices and our platforms to amplify it. So, you know, your role as an ally uh, to be able to quote those statistics that I just outlined, 
is important because hearing it from a white male to other white males, frankly, is probably more powerful than hearing a woman of color talk about it. Uh, and so how, how do we use our platforms within whatever our, our space of control is to, um, to talk about issues that tend to be uncomfortable for, for some, I think is, the, is a simple way in which you can use your, your platform and your power and your privilege for, for change. Such a great um, thought. And it's interesting, I've, as I've had a couple of these podcasts and we've been focusing on um, inclusion and diversity and, and the topic even around Black History Month is it's February, this, this term of, around my privilege continues to be a theme around why it's important to recognize your privilege and then what do you do with it? And so I, you, it sounds like you've, I, you've had such a great example. Could you articulate, I'd love to hear from you, like how do you view your privilege today and what are you doing um, to help move it forward in terms of being an advocate for change, a, a movement, not a moment? Yeah. Yes, so um, I think the first point I want to clarify around privilege is that privilege doesn't take the place of systems change that needs to happen around systemic or institutional issues like racism, right? And sometimes we, uh, we blur the lines between the, the, the systemic issues like racism and the sort of the individual issues of what role do I play in amplifying systemic issues because of my privilege. And that's why I can engage in the privilege conversation because there are certain privileges that I hold. I hold the privilege of, of being highly educated. I hold the privilege of being affluent. Um, and yet with that privilege, I can still give you countless examples of how my race has still shown up not as a privilege. For example, how many times have I answered my door and people have asked for the lady of the house, assuming that as a black woman answering the door, I must be the help, right? How many times have I been stopped by the police in a fancy car uh, and told, um, I'm sick of you people driving around in fancy cars. Now that sounds probably very hard for some people to hear, but that's the reality that I have experienced over my life living in a black body, right? Now, the fact is that privilege that I described still allows me to hold space and how do I use and hold that space? I have to use it to be a, a movement maker. And that means speaking truth, right? Giving examples, because I think storytelling is the way that people can really begin to understand and relate. Um, and so that's, that's the way I think the issues of privilege sit next to the real systemic work that we still have to do around race and racism and other isms. I feel like that was a Harvard-like, you know, little topic on why this is so important and a great perspective of how we see it. Thank you for sharing that. That was, um, 
really profound around making sure we don't blur the lines and, and that there's still so much work that each of us can do in our own circles, which, um, which hopefully as you're listening today, it is inspiring you to say, I can do something more um, and I can continue to create um, or influence circles around me that will be more inclusive and that will you know, really destroy any type of racism um, to your point. So powerful. I, the thing I love about my podcast is it's, it, I get to meet great people like you. The, the hard part is it, it is bite-sized and it's short. So I'm like, oh, we could talk forever. <laughs> but um, I, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to ask this question, but as, as an executive in the NHL, are you allowed to have a favorite hockey team? Uh, not really, but I do, but I'm not going to say who it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my I have too many friends in high places. <laughs> I love it. You're going to leave us on pins and needles fight. So I told you, I'm, I'm as a Canadian, I grew up close to Calgary. And so, you know, I always embraced the, the, the Calgary Flames and have been to a couple of those games. But then, you know, a couple hours more north was the Edmonton Oilers. And, and I grew up, when I grew up, you know, Wayne Gretzky was uh, such an icon. And so I'm not going to push you any further for that from information. But I'd love to hear from you before we close out. Is there a unique insight into the NHL of, you, you mentioned, I've learned to love the, this game. You know, I think pro sports always is kind of like a mystery for so many people because they're like, oh, that would be so cool. But what is it that you love about your position today working in the NHL in such a unique working environment? Yeah, it's, um, it, it's so interesting. Um, there, there are a couple of things that I love. What, one is I love being at the league at this moment in time where we stand at a pivot point relative to um, demographic shifts that are occurring across North America and those implications on, on the sport of hockey. Um, but also this idea of how do we make the sport more culturally available so that audiences that have previously not consumed the sport feel welcomed and safe. And I, and, and, and I say it that way because, you know, as we've talked about um, hockey's lack of access in the, in the past, we typically go right to, you know, lack of ice, lack of infrastructure and the cost. And while those are absolutely important elements of what we need to do to make the sport more um, accessible, they aren't exclusively the reasons why we haven't had more engagement from, from other uh, demographics. And it really has to do with that idea of making the sport culturally available, which means allowing for individualism and expression, which by the way, if you look at what's important to Gen Zers, which is the largest demographic that we're going to see, you know, the growth of that demographic, and it is the most diverse demographic that we've seen, they are interested in individualism and expression, regardless of, of gender and ethnicity and, uh, and race. And so what we're trying to do in hockey is to open hockey up so that our perspective within hockey is more inclusive. 
And that's for the rabbit fan, that's for the casual fan, and that's for the fan in waiting. And I love being at the intersection of all of that and, and helping to, um, to bring voice to that. It's, it's a lot of fun. And, um, and it's really, it gets to that notion of being a movement maker. Oh my gosh. I'm like, that is such a cool job. Like, <laughs> like yeah. to your point, you, you are, I love what, what you've just articulated is like, how do we become more culturally available to, um, to the world? I'm, I'm going to, you know, watch with anticipation around what you're learning, what you look like. I'd love to have you come back and say, okay, what, what did you learn? And how does that apply to us? I think that would be so cool. I'd love to. Oh my goodness. Okay. Three last questions. I promise. Okay. <laughs> um, it is Black History Month this month, and I'd love to hear from you. What what does Black History Month mean to you? Yeah, but Black History Month is is a moment to um, to to celebrate, to educate, and to inspire. Um, uh, and let me tell you what it's not. It, it it is not a flavor of the month. It is not uh, an episodic check the box. It is uh, an, an opportunity, as I said, to educate, to inspire, so that inclusion becomes a year-round sport, right? It, it, how, how, do we, how do we create and normalize uh, black and brown faces, um, experiences into our sport or in any business? And that's what Black History Month is about. That's what Hispanic Heritage is about. It's about Asian, it, any, any of the quote months where we celebrate a particular intersection, it is an opportunity for people to become educated so that these, these populations become normalized into the DNA of, 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 the, of the sport, in, in our case of the sport. Um, and so we're excited to be able to do storytelling so that people understand that Blacks in the sport of hockey is not about future it's about the past it's about the present and it's about the future uh and it it continues to amaze me it's now three years that i've been with the league and two years where we have really sort of turned the dial on this how um inspirational this is not just for blacks but for everyone to understand the contributions that have been made historically the impact on the game that blacks have had uh, and the opportunity we have for, for greater intersectionality in our sport. And, and it's a growth mindset that we are seeking for people to have. I love that. I, I've just written down, inclusion is a year round sport. Um, and, and I just, what great perspective and for each of us to think about that. And it should be something we are playing every single day. Um, wow, okay, question number two, my friend. When you are outside, you're um, getting ready to exercise, you're going on a walk, or it's like pre-game before tip-off or the puck, the puck is gonna be dropped. Do you, have, uh, do you have a certain song that you like to jam out to? <laughs> oh God, there, there are a couple of songs that I jam out to. The, the, my favorite is, um, is Beyonce's Crazy, Crazy in Love. I, that, that, that beat, I just love. Um, there's also an older song that that I love um, and gets me all hyped up, and it's the the um, the Black Eyed Peas. I got a feeling uh, oh, yeah. that, that that's a that's an old good one, and um, and then there's a there's a there's a a, a more recent one which uh, don't listen to the words because some of the language is a little 
a little dicey, but but Drake's back to back has got an amazing beat. I love it. But don't 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 tell anybody I said it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I'm I'm I collect these, and I'm going to do a small things make a big difference playlist. So I'll I'll make sure that you. Oh uh, God, yeah, do the do the GP version or PG version, not the not the not the R slash X version of Drake's song. I love it. And and finally, Kim, I, first off, I just want to say thank you for being so generous with your time and your insights. This has been such really inspirational for me. And I want to thank you for being so open and willing to share. The, the name of the podcast is Small Things Make a Big Difference. So I'd love for our listeners to hear what is one small leadership habit that you do on a consistent basis that has made a big difference in the lives of your family, your work, and the communities that you work uh, operate in? Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm a firm believer that, um, that being vulnerable is such an important leadership trait because through vulnerability, you build trust. Um, and, you know, I, I often think about the dimensions of trust. You know, there's, there's earned trust and there's granted trust. And earned trust, often, you know, leaders leaders earn trust because of their position. But being granted trust is, is that those people that follow you um, want to follow you, not only because you're worthy of being followed, but you're also, you make it clear that in, in leadership, you exercise followership uh, and, 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 and that you respect and listen to the voices of others. And, and I really, really try my best to be a good listener um, and a learner uh, in my leadership journey. Well, and, and just by the last 20 minutes or so, I can tell that you have lived that. And I'll tell you what, Kim Davis, you are mother of the year. You're an executive um, NHL and you are truly a movement maker, not a moment. Thank you for hanging out with us today. It's been inspirational. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've truly, truly appreciated and enjoyed the conversation. I hope you've enjoyed this week's session of small things that make a big difference. If you were inspired, please share this with somebody and help us grow the community of people trying to be intentional in the leaders we're trying to become. A special thanks to Kim Davis who was inspirational in sharing her insights around the balance that we have during our careers of sometimes you've got to make sure you're intentional and there's timing in everything, but to keep moving forward. I loved her insights around all of us have a role to play in helping to increase equity and inclusion in the workplace. And that we may, may we be intentional in it, but also that may we be May we stand up for what is right. And when something is not happening, may we be an ally and may we help ensure that we create a workplace and a community where we embrace diversity and inclusion and that we do the right thing. And then finally, I loved her insight around trust and how do we build that and why that's so important as leaders. And so as the week goes on, may we all be intentional and focus on one small thing that can make a big difference in the communities that we operate, the organizations we work in, and the families and friends that we interact with.